Well, you're with Rational Radio on uh, quite a big day for us. It's our first day at our new studios at WeWork in Santon. And we have the general manager for WeWork here with us in studio, Stafford Marcy. Thank you and welcome. Yeah, it's thanks, awesome. man. It's momentous. It's historic. It is historic yeah. for us, Stafford. And, and to see you in this, guys, you were on yeah. the board with me at MoneyWeb. Before right. that, you were running Google South Africa. Yep. Um, you, you're kind of a tech guru. And <laughs> we're going to find out later why... Why we work? Yeah. What, what you're running? We yeah, work I'll for. I'll tell you all about it. And we also have Kevin Shames, our business partner at Bright Light Solar. Many members of the business community, Kevin, will know you over the past few weeks uh, because of the the 12J company that you've been running. Your prospectus closed last week. It did on Thursday, and I'm here to tell you all about it. Brilliant. But we're going to kick off with a little bit of business news first, and that is with the latest development in the Tongart saga. Well, the man who's been keeping us on the ball on Tongart is uh, David Woolham. You might remember in, in the times we've spoken with David in the past, he approached the Tongart board, gave them financials, said they were running into trouble. They basically politely kicked him out of the building. Um, but now they're listening, and they're listening very carefully. And Dave... I've seen the work and the research that you've done on Tongart. Before we go into this huge sale that they've made of their starch division for more than 5 billion rand, this guy, Gavin Hudson, the new chief executive, he's ducking me. He doesn't want to talk to me. I've asked him, I even uh, offered to go down and see him in Durban. Uh, is, is he actually all that he's made out to be? I see the media are making him out to be quite a, quite a special guy, but why would he be behaving in this way? Uh, good morning, Alec. Um, Thanks for having me on. Um, look, look, it's hard for me to really read his mind uh, in that regard. I, I think what they, what I've seen of, of Gavin is that he's a fairly no-nonsense guy. He wants to get on with the job. He wants to get things done. And maybe he wants his actions to speak rather than his words. Um, so maybe that's – I can't say other than that. I've found him to be pretty approachable when I have met with him. And I think they're getting on with things. They've got a massive task ahead of them. So I suppose every minute spent dealing with the issues at hand is, is time well spent. So it's more internal focus than external focus at the moment? I think that's correct. I mean, there's not a lot you can do um, externally. You know, his biggest challenge is managing the debt levels with the banks. So I imagine he, he doesn't um, turn them down for a discussion. And obviously, slowly, not. <laughs> and, and obviously, slowly rebuilding a, a strategic um, vision for the group. And and I suppose, in a way, talking in in the public, and that is really just raking over old coals to some extent. He he needs to have something to say, and they've got to figure out where this group is and what it's going to look like in a in a year or so. Now, on Friday, they announced that they've sold this starch division for 5.35 billion rand. I remember the, uh, his predecessor, Peter Stader, who's very much under a cloud at the moment because of the way he managed the business, but he always used to say that the starch division was the crown jewels. Have they sold the crown jewels? Um, Alec, well, I'd, I'd maybe slightly correct that. I think he, he made the property business the real crown jewels. But if one looks at, at an operational level, the starch business and maybe more accurately describe it as starch and glucose. I'll explain that in a minute. Um, but it has been an incredibly solid performer. It has a very dominant position in its markets. In fact, in some of the markets, it's the only producer of its kind. And it's had very solid results 
five, the last five years, they've averaged around 500 million operating profits, growing at a nice steady 10% per annum. And this six months to September, it generated 300 million of operating profits and a 200 million profit after tax. So it's a very, very good business. And maybe it was one of those that because it was in Johannesburg and a little bit of out of sight, out of mind, with a very strong management team, they've delivered despite all the issues between sugar industry and the property industry, etc. Hudson said it's a compelling offer that they received from Barlow World. Uh, you know the group as well as anyone else. Would you have sold the starch division for uh, 5.35 billion? Alec, I think it's a pretty good price if we use the measures I just mentioned, whether one looks at EBIT or operating profit, I guess it's the same, um, or profit after tax. It represents on a normalized run rate probably somewhere around 15 to 20 times earnings. So I guess in this market, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good price. Um, you know, are they selling the crown jewels? Well, it's going to be very difficult for this business to, 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 you know, operate without this earning stream. There's been a cash earning stream largely. They don't have a lot of capex, so it's been a very good earner. But when you've got 13 billion of debt and the service costs and the banks obviously putting pressure on you, I think you have no choice but to sell your crown jewels or your best assets, because that's going to have the biggest impact. Needs must in this situation, and that was David Willem, who has been keeping us up to date on the Tongard affair. Stafford, do you invest in uh, JC listed companies? Well, I'm not going to disclose that yet, though. Do you invest in <laughs> Tongard? Uh, no, I'm not, in, uh, you, I'm not a shareholder. You, you weren't a shareholder in Tongard. Were you a shareholder in Steinhoff? I'm not going to disclose. <laughs> we knew, we knew quite a few of the sign yeah. guys from our money web days. Remember? Yeah, I remember. Yeah, they bundle. I mean, I had lots of chats with Marcus back then. Yeah, and um, he was so impressive. We're yeah. talking, I suppose, ten years ago. Maybe he wasn't a crook then. You know what? I, I just, you know, it was very interesting. I've got a story about Marcus. I remember we, I did my presentation about the future of technology at the bundle. And um, I went to the bar area, and he was standing there watching his horses race. And he had listened to me, and then he went to go watch his horses race. And we started talking. And we spoke for about 45 minutes to an hour. And not far from then, um, he called me in and said, you're going to come in and tell us how we're going to become like Google. And uh, he was very proactive in that way. He flew me up to some game lodge. I can't remember where on his jet. I landed, and, yeah, we had a, a huddle around the future of tech and you know, how they as a group could harness it and, you know, what, how they could think different, et cetera, et cetera. So he was, he was quite forward-thinking in that regard. I just didn't read the tea leaves. That's when uh, Joel Stransky was there and, and all those boys, and I got to know them quite well. But, mm. yeah, it's a pity what happened there. Sad. You've had an interesting journey. Yep. Uh, from South Africa to Israel to do your, your computer science <laughs> yep. uh, studying. Came, came back, and then telecom, dimension data, and then I had my first startup. Um, it was a bunch of geeks in a house in Pretoria, in Waterkloof. We bought a house and we just shoved everyone in there. And we like coded. Facebook. We coded for 72 hours at a time. You know, hated sunlight, didn't make eye contact. Well, Very much social. like Facebook. Yeah. 72 <laughs> hours at a time. Wow. Yeah, and then uh, we got our first deal with Sasol. I'll never forget that to do tech for them. And then that got, a portion of that was in, got bought and it became Novell Consulting Services. And that's when I went over to Novell and I bumped into Eric Schmidt. And that's when I went to go pick Eric Schmidt up at the airport. He was nobody. He had been the chief uh, technology officer of Sun Microsystems. He came to South Africa. We went around the country. And then six months later, he invited me to go to the States. And I worked for a guy called Lou Wagman, who reported into him. And essentially, 
uh, we were called global corporate technology strategists. And I spent seven and a half years in the United States doing that. And that was interfacing with CEOs and translating what we heard there and was articulated back to us to developers back home. So we were the bridge between the techies that were antisocial, didn't make eye contact with the CEO of Brasilia Telecom and what he wanted to see the platform do. And that was our role. And it was a privilege. And then Eric went to uh, Google, and we also was like, what the hell is he doing? Like, why? Why would he ever go? I actually got an invite to join Google when he left, and I turned it down because I thought, ask.com, Jeeves, why would I possibly go to Google? When was this? What year was uh, I can't. I was it late nineties, early two thousand. Okay, so Google was a no. Kind of Google nothing. was small. Yeah, this oh. is when Eric joined. This was the first mature person inside of Google, <laughs> and uh, I didn't join because I was very fascinated with the open source software movement, and I wanted to be a part of that. And Novell did a lot of that. And then my second kid was born, and I didn't want my kid to grow up to become an American, or my two kids to be American. So I came back home in two thousand and four, and I headed up Novell. Um, and after that, I was going to become a rescue helicopter pilot. Nice. That was actually what I wanted to become. And then I sat down with a journalist, and she showed me her phone, and she said, Google's looking to hire someone in South Africa. And I thought, but they're here. And then I reached out to someone that knew Eric well, Eric Schmidt well, and I said, what's this? Google's here already. And he forwarded that to Eric. Eric forwarded that to HR in London, and uh, one line email said, make it happen. They flew me to London. Eighteen interviews later, I came back with a Google laptop and a card that didn't work, and I launched Google in, in Africa for the first time. And that was fascinating because we did, you know, for the first time we did um, Google content that was indexed for South African content, and we're teaching people how to optimize their websites for that. But we also did Street View. So I went to Toyota and bought a ton of Priuses, and then we gutted the Priuses, and we put all that strange Google equipment inside of it. And uh, that's where Street View came from. And then we did stuff for the World Cup. And then 2010, I jumped out. Um, I took a sabbatical for a while, but then I went and built after that Thumbs Up. And Thumbs Up was the payment pebble that plugs into a phone and converts it to a card acceptance machine. The payment device became the payment blade. We launched it with APSA. We took it to Australia. We took it to New Zealand. We went into Southeast Asia with it. Um, and then three and a half years ago, I jumped out of that because I, I was burnt out. And then uh, during my burnout phase, I, I was shopping, and I decided I could do something about retail shelves that had gaps in them. And I built a company called Soren AI. And that's an artificial intelligence engine that runs on retail shelves. Um, also invested in a fintech company. Um, I just sold a Bitcoin startup. Um, so, yeah, I was, I've been very invested in technology startups and building things that don't exist in the first place with very, very, very smart people. Um, not why me. here? Why, why not Silicon Valley? Because South Africa and Africa puts forward terrestrial challenges that you won't find in a first world. And when you overcome those terrestrial challenges here, it becomes so much easier to replicate and federate in, in the G8. I'll never forget with the payment pebble, when we built it, we had to think about security, we had to think about literacy, we had to think about energy, anemic networks, price sensitivity. It's really, really hard building stuff here. But when you build it here and you overcome and you get scale here, when you go to Australia, everyone speaks English. The rule of law is paramount. Um, everyone's got the latest phone, etc. And then that, it just became so easy. And then when we went to Southeast Asia, because we had done it in South Africa, the terrestrial questions around can it scale in this environment, can it do, w weren't there. It went very quickly to the commercial realm. So that's how I feel. I feel like the next Twitter won't come from you. The next Facebook's not going to come from you. Next Google, no. I think the next Twitter water purification will. The next Facebook of healthcare will. We're already seeing the next Googles of the financial services here. And I think Africa is a place where folks like myself should stay because when you build things here at scale, um, it generally forces you to build things that have human impact. I mean, I built the payment bubble because someone lost a baby because she couldn't make a payment. That was the origin of that company. 
right? And then saw an AI, which is artificial intelligence engine, was because I couldn't find bran muffin mix on Woolworths' shelves every time I went shopping. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so I just I tend to do that. And then uh, I wasn't going to work for anyone um, yeah. uh, again, and yeah. I was enjoying my startups and my family. And then WeWork came along. And I did a. Um, it came along while the founder and. Uh, or yeah, this was this was July August last year. I, th- I think it was more July last year. I actually walked into the WeWork building in Rosebank, and it was still a construction site because I was looking for space for my engineers. I walked in, and long story short, I looked at it. I couldn't conceptualize, and I didn't think, why Why is this so special? I just knew WeWork in London. Mm-hmm. I'd seen a couple of times. Yeah. And then uh, when I climbed in the elevator, the recruitment lady that was looking to recruit a GM for the operation in sub-Saharan Africa, she was in the elevator, and she said, hey, Stafford, I need your help to recruit. So we went down, and we had lunch. And I put forward some names that did interviews, and then she turned to me a couple, like a couple of weeks later, and she said, why don't you throw your hat in the ring? I said, you know, I'm not interested. I could, I, I've done this multinational thing. I've done the Google thing. And then Important. I got at that stage, mm-hmm. was all the controversy no. about Adam and Rebecca no, and not women? Yet. No, not yet. No, this was the heyday. Right, if you take middle last year, it was the heyday. Right, this is when the valuation was going to be insane. And, but anyway, I got into a video call with Adam and Miguel. And uh, Adam was fascinating, but I found Miguel very fascinating and he and I went from a 15 minute video con and it was about 90 minutes that we were on zoom and we were talking and we really engaged and I loved what they were trying to do and they gave me an understanding of how big the space is I mean commercial real estate is the largest industry in the entire world mm. you know there is no other industry bigger than this and the net impact that they were having was not even one percent yet and their vision around I'll never forget what they said they said they want to build the world's largest physical social network that really resonated with me and, uh, how so the not ma- let space, no. but build a social network in the space. Well, a, a consequence of that would be this physical social engagement, right? not necessarily going out and attempting to do that explicitly. But if you take a look at, they, they say WeWork's not a tech company because yeah, we were trying to trade on that. They say we were trying to trade. I, I get that. But if you work for WeWork, then you start realizing how much technology is here. Mm-hmm. You know, the ability to walk into a WeWork building, tap your card, and then immediately when you're connected to the Wi-Fi over here and you're all onboarded, you can go to any WeWork in the entire world. Get off the plane and just walk in. You don't have to speak to anyone. You know how everything works. Your laptop just connects. Your phone just connects. You walk around London and you know when you're near WeWork because your, light, your phone just lights up. There are very few companies in the entire world today that has identity federation for connectivity working in that way. That's a huge technological layer that makes a lot of things possible for businesses. So you can walk anywhere in the world with a global access card into any WeWork and you're operational. And you can have your meeting and you can access services in that building. You can attend events in that building. That's a huge – it suddenly makes – it makes a city a campus. It makes the globe a campus. And also the possibility to get skills to be a part of your business. You know, I've run startups a lot. And one of the big challenges of an African startup is – when I get to Australia, where am I going to meet the CEO of ANZ if he doesn't want to meet me inside of ANZ? I'm at a coffee shop. Already I look like an African startup. So I've, mm. the, 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 the prejudice or the, the you know, just, just out the gate, you're looking like you're dangerous and risky. If you're in a WeWork and you're in a beautiful office and you're offering coffee and you, you're walking up, it's just it's a different feel. Also, the ability to acquire skills on a global basis. How's it been going? Because I, I yeah. know you as an ambitious guy and mm-hmm. clearly how many WeWorks are there now? Three? Yeah, in less than seven months, we've now got uh, three significant presences, one in Rosebank. This one, by the way, is absolutely spectacular. I've been to – I was a WeWorks – have been a WeWork fan for for a long time. We had an office in London. 
haven't seen anything as beautiful yeah, as this building. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the 155 mm. Western Santon, we've got one in Rosebank and we've got one in Cape Town. And the one in Rosebank, the figures there is just astonishing. And that was that really, I knew what we were building was special. But when we opened up the doors August, September last year, we were fully subscribed. I and mean, that's a building of almost 2,500 desks, fully subscribed in seven weeks. We filled that building in six months. That's the fastest occupation density in terms of velocity in the history of South Africa. I sat down with the redefined CEO because they own that building. They didn't believe. Andrew and Sipo, the chairman, mm. we brought them into the building in December last year or November last year because they said these numbers don't make sense. It cannot be true. We brought them in the building and they walked around. They actually saw that it was filled up. Who's coming in? Who, who's subscribing so quickly? It's an interesting, it's a diversity, but I think just on average, we're seeing about almost 50% of the folks occupying our space are enterprises. It's not startups. Startups are actually 10 to 12% of the base. We see emerging businesses, um, and we see largely corporates coming in, and not corporate head offices. So, example, a bank will say, we want our blockchain team uh-huh. in here yeah. because, number one, is we don't know if that team is going to be 20 people or 200 people. So the ability to flex our space, we're not taking long-term leases, is very, uh, it makes commercial sense. And pirates as well, yeah. uh, as Steve Jobs used to say, put the... Macintosh guy there with their skull and crossbones. Yes. They're the pirates of the organization. Yeah, much better than being in a big corporate yeah. building. Well, we call, we call them millennials now, not pirates. But anyway. <laughs> no, were, they, were they millennials in history? Uh, maybe I think that's what, what you see. Like when mm. I speak to corporate CEOs, uh-huh. they love WeWork because there's a monetary value um, in terms of them not having to kit out space and the value of not having people work from home. Mm. Because people working from home, it's lonely, it's depressing, and it's more expensive because they keep calling the IT department when they can't connect and the IT department is sitting and talking to you know, 200 ISPs a day. Mm-hmm. It's just not sustainable. Whereas when you go into a WeWork, you know, you're not at work, you, you're mixing with people, there's events happening and it's just more, yeah, it's amenable in terms of productivity. But CEOs are saying to get to millennials, to hire them and to retain them, if I don't put them in a WeWork, I can't do it. No matter how beautiful yeah. I make my, 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 my building, my blue building, my green building, my red building, at the end of the day, I can't retain those skills. They want to be in places like WeWork because this is where millennials live. Now, the, the reason they come but here... But Stafford mm-hmm. is not just millennials. I'm, yeah. I'm certainly not a millennial yeah. <laughs> in, But I mean, the reason you love this space is because you can just see when you walk in, right? Mm. It's, it's a place where you want to be. It's a place where a lot of things occur. But yeah. why, when I talk to people who are a little older, mm-hmm. they say, oh, but there is a Regus. And there, is, there, there are lots of these shared offices. I think there's one here in Joba called The Cube, or right. I, I heard the other day. Mm-hmm. How do you answer that question? What is, how is WeWork different to those operations? Oh, first of all, I'll say this. From a competition perspective, I think the space is just so big. So we don't really focus on those folks a lot. Um, we find that we have enough people coming through our doors. We have waiting lists of people trying to get into our building. So it's clear that the product is very differentiated from just a, it's not a co-working space only. I think if you look at the full value proposition, co-working is such a small aspect of it. I mean, when you walk into a WeWork, the amenities, the way the floor layout, the design, the thinking, the way the technology works so seamlessly, the WeWork app, the fact that you have access when you walk into a WeWork to almost a million global members. Instantaneously. I'll give you an example. A guy tapped me on the shoulder a couple of months ago, ponytailed, millennial with you know, tattoos up to his ear. He's sitting there, two of them. They're graphic designers. He taps me on the shoulder. He shows me an invoice on his laptop for 18,000 rand. So I says, is that an invoice for me? He laughs. He says, no. Let me quickly show you GM of WeWork, how WeWork works for us. And he showed me on the WeWork member app, our mobile application. So we become a WeWork member. You get picked up. And he showed me in the app Nuspers. 
at the link it said is there a graphic design in the building he ran up the two days of work for them and made 18,000 rand so it's not just a place where you come and co-work it's a place where you live work and play it's a place where you can build your business so what about the future what plans do you have for WeWork in South Africa? So we will, um, I mean, it's obviously we want to fill these buildings that we have. We want to build a thorough, verbose, well-articulated Africa strategy within the business. So we truly, you know, WeWork, this is the first time they're on the African continent. This is a learning process for them. My job and my role is to make sure that they understand Africa to understand the nuances of doing business here in Africa, and that we're going to showcase the capabilities and the innovations in Africa adequately. So Africanizing WeWork mm-hmm. is, is, a, is one of my top priorities right now. Um, north of the border, people always ask me the question, yes, we want to go, but we're growing differently now. You know, when I joined Google at uh, WeWork, it was all about desk, 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 desks. Now it's about PNL-driven decision-making. Now it's looking at the performers, making sure that, you know, we can full desk the, the demographics that we want to target. We can actually get into the building. So we are a lot more meticulous from a financial perspective than we've ever been before. Mm-hmm. So folks like Marcelo, our chairman, uh, Sandeep, our new CEO, um, the, the amount of executives cascading into WeWork now, the top echelons. Um, he just did his first meeting last week with the entire company, Sandeep, the, the global CEO. And after that call, I mean, the feeling that you get is just, you know, that value proposition that Adam saw. Mm. And no matter what you say about Adam, at the end of the day, what he built is something that's an anomaly. There's nothing like it in the entire world. And now we're getting folks that know how to run businesses, to run deep PLs on a global scale. We're getting that level of expertise at, at that level. And I'm w- excited about that. I want to ask you, just think this one through, mm-hmm. the Adam Neumanns, yeah. the Travis Kavalnik mm-hmm. from Uber. Mm-hmm. Why is it that, that, that they are able to achieve some, or build something so sensational, but yet not to sustain it? But let's bring Kevin Shames in now. Yeah. Kevin, uh, you, you said at the intro to the show that uh, Bright Light Solar, which is also a highly innovative uh, operation, that your prospectus closed last week. You were looking for a minimum of 10 million rand. Did you, did you manage to get that much? We did, Alex. So we're very pleased to report that we raised 82.5 million rand. Um, and the way that uh, a VCC works, uh, the, the 12J company, is um, it cannot be the owner of 100% of the installation. It gets technical, but basically that 82 million grosses up to 120 million rand of installation value. So we've now got a target of deploying 10 million rand a month for the next year, uh, which is great. It, it, it gives us a fantastic capital base to go forward. Um, it's, it's a very exciting space, as we've discussed many times, mm-hmm. and um, we're very pleased. It, it, it's interesting how the, uh, the dynamics and the makeup of that 82.5 million has changed. Um, so last year we raised um, 94 million from 96 investors, so call it a million rand an investor average. Bearing in mind last year there was no cap on the investment, so we had some... What does that mean, a cap on the investment? So the the, uh, National Treasury changed uh, the amount that individuals and companies could contribute to 12J companies this year, and they capped that amount at 2.5 million for an individual. And previously no cap? Previously there was no cap. So in, in last year's capital raise we had some very chunky investors, and obviously that... Uh, moved that average. This year, uh, because of the cap, we had a number of, of investors at that 2.5 million rand cap 
that expressed that they would have wanted to invest substantially more. Obviously, we couldn't facilitate it. Um, but it's interesting that the 82.5 million came from 222 investors. So more than right. double the number of last year. Yeah, more than, yeah. more than double the number. The average 370,000 rand per investor. Um, and, and so we, we farm more... Um, I guess democratic in in terms of our capital raise. We've we've certainly broadened the base, uh, which is very exciting. Uh, gives us a great platform going forward, and we've got the capital now that really we're, we were seeking to raise, and gives us a, a fantastic opportunity to deploy going forward. I'm just thinking from Treasury's perspective. They started the 12 Js to get South Africans to invest, gave them an incentive, tax incentive to invest in projects like this and particularly in, in a project like yours which will help Eskom in however a bigger way in eventually. They must be quite, quite pleased about this but there is still that uh, possibility that the 12J is going to be done away with in June next year. Yes, so the legislation uh, in the Income Tax Act does state that there is a sunset clause at the end of June 2021 which is next year uh, that the existing 12J legislation will expire and uh, National Treasury now will have to make decisions as to what they want to do going forward. Um, in the budget notes, there was a reference to 12J, uh, but there's no indication yet what the thinking from National Treasury is. Do they want to extend it? Do they want to uh, tweak it to make it um, applicable to certain industries only, or do they want to scrap it altogether? Mm. We'll only know that then next year. But as far as this year's investors are concerned, that 21% effective return that you were talking about, is that secure with the, for those who put in the 82.5 million? So it, it, it only becomes secure, obviously, once they exit in year five. It, it, it's a process. So remember that process was the 12J deduction up front, the semi-annual dividends over the five years, and then the exit in year six. Uh, we are still certainly forecasting that that is fully on track. And uh, now we've got to go and deploy. So the capital's been raised. Now we've got to go and deploy in great assets and ensure that uh, we, we, we can deliver the returns that we promised. And there's no impact on them about any changes of legislation no. next year or, or thereafter? No. Are you, will you be looking to raise more capital in a year's time, yes. given that you still do have that, that window? Yeah. So, so we're certainly going to look to raise again in February 21. And then we'll have to see what the what what the uh, the conversation is as to whether it is going to be extended, as to if if there is a sunset clause, then are we going to consider raising in June 21, um, or is it kind of too soon? And mm -hmm. we'll only really make that decision after next year's capital raise in February. Well, congratulations, Kevin. It's been great to talk to you about the 12J. I think a lot of South Africans now know that this thing exists, uh, whereas before it wasn't there, and it's, I'm delighted that members of the money... Uh, <laughs> you got me onto that earlier, <laughs> money web. <laughs> of the business community have actually um, participated, and, and good luck to you and into the future. It's, it's, it's interesting to see when innovative things are started and tried, Stafford, in mm -hmm. South Africa, like the 12J, and if you think before that, the whole renewables energy yep. project. At the time when, what was it, bid, bid process one came out, there was a lot of comp uh, opposition yep. about it. Now, thank heavens that we've had the renewable energy, otherwise it's going to be in even deeper trouble that right. we'd have even more uh, brownouts or blackouts or load shedding or anything right. that they want to call it. Yeah, I do think, I think there's a phase that innovators 
need to execute. I think there's a, there's a, there's a phase in a business where a traditional MBA would look at the space and go, you are nuts. It's never going to happen. You know, if you take a look at what Adam Newman built, if you take a look at what Travis has done with Uber, take a look at the scale of these businesses, right? I mean, uh, the largest occupying, we work, largest occupying London, Manhattan, D.C., Paris, um, you know, had an incredibly crazy investor, SoftBank, backing that vision. And take a look at the net result, right? So, so from a pure numbers perspective, I think it will stand up inevitably. I think Uber is just the, the type of business that you need crazies in the beginning, people with... Uh, incredible visions. Now, what I like is the immunities that kick in, you know, as they start maturing. And so we can say what we want. So we saw Travis leaving uh, Uber. We saw Larry and Sergey had to step down and Eric had to jump in at Google. We see, uh, you know, uh, Microsoft, uh, you know, Sanjay taking over there. We see. So everywhere you take a look, there's a phase that a business goes through where the, the crazy innovators, the guys that are constantly trying to reboot the system and build new, break down the clay and, and kind of reinvigorate it again, need to move on. And then you need more P&L driven business folks that look at the organization because it's a certain size, look at the P&L. And I think that's market immunities that kick in. And I think they're good. It doesn't mean the original idea was not valid, that the business is going to fall over. I mean, Uber is just so big. I mean, look at the impact that it's had. I look at what it does to me on a daily basis. I walk, I catch an Uber, and while I'm catching Uber, I'm getting Uber Eats for my kids. And then, I mean, this is how the world should work. Now, the model around that from a monetization perspective, that's an interesting one. I think folks like the, the new Uber CEO would have to figure that out. Mm-hmm. And now whether that's downscaling, right-sizing, growing more responsibly like WeWork's doing right now. So we've got our scale. Now the question is how are we going to scale further? And that will be done in a different way. So Marcelo announced instead of going off and doing a lease on a building where we go to a developer and say, okay, we'll take the lease, we'll take the 20-year commitment, and we'll back it up. They're saying, wait a minute, we don't know about your fundamentals. So there's a different way. We could do it in an asset light way. We could do it in a franchise model. So there's different ways to grow a business without having to do this heavy plunging in with raising enormous amounts of capital. And I think where we work is right now is we've got to think more creatively. We've got to think more uh, intuitively around where we are and how we're going to grow. And I think it's going to be a partnership-led model where we scale out. It won't slow. I think WeWork's going to be double its size that it was September last year, September this year. Be double its size because of existing commitment. Uh, that and a combination of doing things in a creative way. Again, coming back to the franchise model, coming mm. back to asset light, where we've got an intermediary. So the landlord sitting there, we got someone saying, "I like the WeWork model. I'll take on the lease. I'll have a management agreement with you, um, and then we'll do a rev share associated with that." I mean, that's the model that we've employed already in South Africa. South Africa is an asset light model for WeWork. Right? Is that so different to elsewhere in the world? Yeah, elsewhere we've got WeWork that have explicit ownership of leases. And that's why the street looks at that and says, wait a minute, this is a huge liability and a downturn, um, etc. But it's not. If you take a look at a downturning market in South Africa, where do businesses go in a downturning market? They come into a WeWork because it's more cost effective to be in a WeWork because you're not signing yourself the longer term commitment and you're focusing on your business and your core fundamentals, especially if you don't know if you're going to lay off half your team or you're going to increase it or double it. Um, being in a WeWork gives you the ability to trombone and kind of just flex your business in a, in a very unique way and you can do that on a global scale. So I think the value proposition is clear. I think innovators have their time and then they need to step away. As a startup founder, I see that more and more. You know, as, as, as I build businesses, there's a time for me 
where I'm crazy, no one will put money into it, I'm putting money alone into it, we're building something, you're prototyping, you're proving that it can, and then you get the folks in the room that kind of look at the fundamentals around you know, your bill of materials, your cost of this, your operating margin, how does it scale out, looking at your manufacturing line, single suppliers, there's a time for those folks, but not in the beginning. If we don't have the crazies, mm-hmm. we wouldn't have half the stuff that we have today. Yes, to the crazy ones. Yep, mm. exactly. Kevin, thanks for coming through, giving us an update. Stafford, always great seeing you, particularly in your own building, in our own <laughs> new studio. And, Welcome. And, and thanks for giving us the WeWork story of South Africa, a different approach. And I'm sure under your guidance, it's, it's going to be the one that is going to shine around the world. Thank Good you to for that vote of Good, to you. Good to see you both. Cheers. Thank you. Well, some fascinating conversations there with uh, Stafford Marcy and Kevin Chames. And, of course, we also heard about the whole Tongart saga earlier on from Dave Willem. We've got even more interesting things, if possible, coming up now. Cannabis and coronavirus. I mean, could you ask for two more interesting subjects? <laughs> We've got Brian van Royen in the studio, who's uh, going to be maybe South Africa's cannabis stock. Well, it's the only one at the moment on the JSE. Labat. Africa, Africa goes yeah. cannabis. Absolutely, indeed. Well, we're going to we're going to go deeper into that. Um, Brian and I knew each other from well, a long time ago, but we listed companies in the same year, 1999. Yes, 1999. Yes. And it's been a I, well, I left uh, Web some time ago, but your journey is you're still in there, you're still hanging in with with Levat, and we're going to find out more about this very exciting stage in in your life. Indeed, Alec. And then another old friend, Vikas Smare, who was the co-founder of Citadel. Uh, he's also been a very, uh, inst- well, a very well-qualified economist, trained at the University of Pretoria and Cambridge. So, Vikas, we were at a breakfast last Friday, and I've heard the most sensible insight yet on the whole coronavirus from you. Um, your latest adventure, though, before we, we, we talk about coronavirus, uh, is with a company called Classic Private Wealth. I see you're not the CEO there. No, I, I would call myself the founder, but I'm not the CEO. I'd never like taking on the CEO job because I always think that advice is a little bit like a professional firm. The most senior person should be dealing with clients, not running the business. And it, it is a bit of a change, I suppose, uh, for you being an economist, a trained economist, Yes. Uh, to be starting businesses, as you did with Citadel and, and now this one too? I guess that the entrepreneurial thing is a bug that bites people from many varied backgrounds. So even some chartered accountants start new businesses. Indeed they do. Well, <laughs> Brian van Rooyen is, is an accountant, not a chartered uh, one. Is it no. a C, CFA, CPA? Yeah, CFA? CPA now. CPA, yeah. CPA now. Okay, Brian, so... Everybody listening to this knows that we've known each other for a long time. They probably say, that Brian van Rooyen, is that the same as the rugby guy? Yes, indeed. It is the same guy that buggered up South African rugby, <laughs> as some people say. Well, <laughs> I, I, I hope that isn't a universal thought. I don't think so. Because yeah. we won the World Cup mm, three times now. Yeah, That's pretty good times, going. Yes, 2007, yeah. yes, as well. And But you actually did play rugby yourself. Yes, I did. I played for the then Transvaal Independent Rugby Football Union and post-1992, the unification between the South African Rugby Union and the South African Rugby Board in Kimberley, the Transvaal Rugby Union of Ibrahim Patel, or uh, Turfu Independent Union, together with the 
Transvaal Rugby, Uni- uh, Rugby Union of Louis Leyte merge. We were the first ones to merge post-1992. And then you went on in rugby to become the chairman or the president of South African Rugby and uh, fascinating story on another occasion. I'm sure we'll get into that. But yes. this is all about Labat and more specifically the latest or the recent developments at Labat. Now, looking through your, your website, I can see that you had a, and your annual report, uh, you had a bit of a rough time in the energy uh, area. Um, with a company uh, there called Force, Force Fuel. Fuel yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. What went on, before we talk about cannabis, because that really is your new thrust, but yes. what went on there? I think what went on there was a discussion that we had with the PIC just just, just before the, uh, the whole inquiry started. And uh, there was an opportunity to consolidate the energy sector um, in, in South Africa. And we thought that um, one of the things that we will be doing is to look at one of the major independent energy uh, fuel providers and then uh, tie that up with somebody, a couple of the assets that the PIC had. But because of uh, of the whole inquiry, that whole process within the PIC stopped and we were left with this energy asset which we still believe is a, is a good asset that you could take forward um, obviously as you s- just mentioned that we had to take a massive write off um, uh, it made your numbers look horrible last yeah, it looked, it, uh, but, but everybody that knew you know it, it had not one single cent move in the share price mm. so people knew that it was a decision that we took in, in, in making sure that we that we write off um, what was a very difficult industry, particularly with, with, with illegal fuels coming into South Africa. Why don't you just pull that microphone a little bit closer to you? We've got Mr. Shapiro, who's now got through the rain, Joburg <laughs> rain. We must never complain about Joburg rain, David. Uh, no, getting into this new... This is a lovely building. Isn't it? Yes, it's, it's absolutely... You need to pull it a little bit closer. Closer, you, you, you I see you're a bit surprised about the headphones, that they've all been cleaned. Yeah, I've never had that before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been on radio for... must be 25 years yes. plus. Uh-huh. See, Vickers is here for coronavirus. Is, okay. So we're going oh to talk about okay. headphone virus. Yeah. But uh, it's going to be quite interesting, because you and I are quite quite sanguine about coronavirus. Vickers is feeling a little different. I can understand why. But we'll we'll, we'll see. He'll explain uh, in just a moment. Brian van Rooyen, you know, from many years of of broadcasting, his company, Labat Africa, Mm. is uh, driving aggressively into the cannabis sector. Uh, You should read the annual report. It's it's, um, very exciting because we've we've spoken about cannabis stocks Mm. in the past Mm. in the cannabis uh, area. But what got you, Brian? What got you into... The uh, about five, ten years ago, we had a huge facility that we were going to turn into an API facility within Labat. What's API? Uh, uh, active pharmaceutical ingredients for the antiretrovirals at the time. And we did a lot of work going into the pharmaceutical sector. Unfortunately, some political intervention made that whole thing fell through. And it never happened, and as of today, South Africa doesn't have an API uh, manufacturing facility in South Africa. We didn't stop there. Uh, in everything that we did going forward with Labat, we always knew that there would be an area that we will continue what we left off about seven, eight years ago in the pharmaceutical sector. 
And uh, it just so happened that one of the things that we've been working on uh, in for the last two years was the whole cannabis. Two uh, years? Yeah, two years we've been working on this whole implementation of the cannabis. David hasn't even had his cannabis shares for two years. And I think that, that, that's, that's the exciting part of it, you know, because it, um, as we speak today, you know, there's been a lot being said about cannabis in South Africa, but it still remains a Schedule 7 drug under the Narcotics Act, which makes it illegal for commercial purposes in South Africa. So what was uh, President Trump? Maposa saying in the state of the nation that that changed things, if any. Yes. Look, look. I think from from the cannabis perspective, uh, we've got to be very clear when we talk about cannabis. People has got this view that you can make billions and billions of rands out of cannabis in South Africa. In South Africa, it's still illegal. That's why our first license that we've obtained is in Lesotho, which makes it legal in Lesotho. In South Africa, the problem, or, or not in South Africa, but in, in the world, uh, there, there's a clear distinction between the two cannabis strains. Let's call it for one of a better word. One is the marijuana. This is the thing that people smoke that make you high, the high THC levels and everything else, and everybody thinks that that is uh, the route to go. And then you've got your your hemp side from the cannabis, your low THC, some instances no THC, but high CBD content for oils and gels and uh, supplementary medicines and foods and fibers and industrial. That's where your big industry for South Africa lie between the two. You know, so. Um, uh, we've taken a view that we will not enter the cannabis market for recreational purposes. That's just a decision that we've taken. So, so, so reading your annual report, you've got a lot of land now in yes, Lesotho. In Lesotho. Is that, are you growing the plants yeah, there? Yeah. What, what we do in Lesotho, because uh, it's legal, in Lesotho we've got an operation called Labat Botanicals. There we will grow very high THC content, up to 30 35%. But that we do for the medicinal and for the pharmaceutical market, and we've got a five-year offtake agreement as announced with a European company. So that's already that's pre-sold. Yeah, that's pre-sold. So that's a that's a five. How, how big a? Uh, it's about profit. five billion. Five billion in uh, in projected uh, uh, turnover for that. That is one company. So we will grow it. The you know there is a big operation in in in. Uh, in Lesotho, and let me just mention it, it's uh, MGL, Medigrow. Uh, they, they've, they're the first ones that have been in Lesotho. We're obviously not going to go the same route. We're going to grow, we're going to cultivate, and we're going to do it all under GMP uh, um, requirements and then export it. That goes straight out. Our whole cannabis market in South Africa is the legislation and government is obviously now looking at separating uh, the legislation from your narcotics, your high THC, to your CBD and your hemp industrial. So That's you've, you've, you've got a, a head start yes, because you're busy in Lesotho and yes. once South Africa's legislation is changed, you presumably have the opportunity to leverage that knowledge into this market. No, we're in South Africa. You're in already. South Africa already, yeah, but not no, b b mm -hmm. because there are exceptions in in the legislation. So, you can sell any uh, uh, cannabis-related product as long as it uh, as long as it is 
in terms of the prescription of SAPRA, the South African Health Regulation so Council. Tell me about the rating of Labatt relative to the rating of Canadian yep. cannabis stocks. I, I think I think we 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 at a uh, we at the beginning right uh, 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 right now. What we've done. We, instead of, you know, there's, there's been a lot of licenses going. I think the Lesotho government has issued like 135 licenses, and you can literally go on a corner of a street and buy a license. The, the problem with that is you need to have your offtake, and that is for that particular market, that high THC. The Canadians came into South Africa. I think um, it's... it's, it's, it's um, uh, it's public knowledge that uh, Canopy Grow, Supreme, and a couple of them invested big bucks in... What's big bucks? Uh, uh, close to 50, 100 million rand into entities in the cannabis uh, side of it. What we've done, we've started off with our botanicals, which is an offtake. It's there, it's done and dusted, but we went straight into the retail. Because in South Africa, you can go to Clicks and go to, uh, you can go to Diskem and you can buy CBD-infused products in the country at the moment because the, the regulation says as long as it doesn't contain more than 20%, 20 milligrams in CBD. That's so not going to make you high, in other words? No, no, that's CBD. CBD uh -huh. won't make you okay. high at all. The THC, the international norm is about point. 3% or 0.03%, ours is 0.001%. And that's why you saw that in December there was a clampdown on a company called Canapax, and I can mention it because it's also public knowledge, that has been selling these products, mm. but they contain more than the required. So there's a huge policing problem within South Africa. Ours is to take, we, we uh, our products are on the market and uh, the first thing that we did, we acquired a SAPRA approved facility in Durban. So that's, uh, that SAPRA approved facility allows us. Do you know about this stuff, yeah. David? Have you been following much of it? Yeah. I, I've been following it as a theme and we know it's going to be big. We know it's going to be big in the pharmaceutical area. Yes. Uh, it's been difficult to to really find something that you know you can uh, get your head around. But I have to tell you an amusing story. This is on the recreational story side. Uh, I've got a very good friend from Toronto, and he's come back and he said there it's recreationally approved. He says the only problem is that the cops there are very tough. They're very tough on drink and drive. He says, but they don't know how to handle a person who's high. He says, because there's no breathalyzer and there are no regulations. All they can do is tell the person to put the car, si a car on the side of the road, walk home or get someone else, but they cannot arrest you. So legislation has to change. Legislation has got to catch up with, with all of this. But uh, it's not just legislation, uh, because let's bring you into the conversation now about coronavirus. The, here in South Africa, we're dealing with quite a lot of stuff. The, uh, we have been talking on this program with a couple, Gary and, and Andy Cronier, who are based in China. They're school teachers from Durban, and they've been bringing us up to date as things develop. The last time we spoke to them last week, they said that things seem to be getting back to normal in China. Uh, we saw in Business Day this morning, I don't know if you saw the big advert from the Chinese embassy, oh. which shows that the, the infections in China are reducing now. Um, certainly the deaths are reducing as well. So it's almost like China's got it under control, but the world is panicking. Mr. Market is very worried about what's happening. Is, I've heard the story, but is this yeah. justified? 
my own opinion is that market reaction has been just about right in the sense that what you have to say is that the coronavirus is a lot like a bad flu. So why would you have a 14% adjustment in, in rates just because of a bad flu season? And the answer is it's actually not the actual coronavirus symptoms and people who are suffering and dying that is affecting the market. It's the measures that's being taken to slow the spread of the virus. So the question obviously is why are these measures being taken if it is just a bad flu? All right, 2% mortality. So that's, that's a bit worse than a bad flu, I presume. Yeah, no, it's, a it's a couple of bad flu seasons rolled into one. So the first thing is that the 2% is probably wrong because we're not measuring everybody who's getting infected any, anywhere close. So effectively, there's a lot bigger universe, and we are measuring the people who are dying fairly accurately. So probably coronavirus, less than 1% mortality, whereas normal flu season is about 0.1, so it's 10 times a normal flu season, maybe two or three times a bad flu season kind of idea. But the, the reason why they're taking these measures is what you normally do with a flu season is you prepare for it and the preparation is you come up with a vaccine and then you vaccinate the professionals who are dealing with patients so you go to the medical professions first because that's where the spread goes and then the second thing you do is you vaccinate the vulnerable population so you and I were sitting at this breakfast on Friday morning and we had some ex CEOs of South African companies. Well, it was on retirement so <laughs> <laughs> but, but the comment was made only old men die of this um, and they kind of were sitting around the table. Um, so, so, so typically what happens is if you're vulnerable, you get inoculated. And therefore, that brings the, that's one of the reasons why the typical flu season is not that deadly and why not that many people get it, is because you actually have this vaccination program beforehand. The problem with coronavirus is we don't have a vaccine, and it's going to be somewhere between six months and a year, probably before we have a vaccine. Um, so what people are doing is saying, if we can contain it for long enough, that we can actually develop a vaccine and prepare for it properly, then it would be much less uh, severe. The other thing that happens is you want to spread out the infection over a longer period of time, because typically what seems to be happening is about 15% of patients get hospitalized and about 5% of patients need to go into intensive care. So your facilities will come under a great deal of pressure if everybody gets it at the same time. So if we could have it slowly over a three-year period, then we can kind of cope with it. If we get it all at once, it's much more severe. So what we're doing, what governments around the world are doing, is they're taking very severe measures. So even in Italy, they're putting um, all kinds of, of quarantines on, on towns, etc., in order to slow it down, because I think that everybody's now accepted this as an airborne virus. You know, it will how go, do you slow it down? Though? It will grow. It will go viral. Um, but, and but how, do you, the, how do you slow it down? The, the Surely, way, if the, it's the way you airborne. slow it down is, is, is so, so. The first thing is you can't prevent it eventually. Mm. from spreading. But you can slow down the spread by putting in things like quarantines, which means that people from the affected areas don't go across the world and spread it immediately. So it's a race to get the vaccine. It's a Is race to get the vaccine and initially also a race to get testing equipment. Because if 
while it's at low levels, you want to know when someone's got it. Once it gets into the general population, you look at symptoms. But initially, you want to test, and there's only limited testing ability at this point, so you want to contain it to be able to test, first of all, and then secondly, to, to get to a vaccine, and that slows the whole thing down and it limits the, the deaths and the, the really severe cases. So the containment process is what's scaring the markets, not, not that coronavirus is an existential If we look at it three mankind. years from now, we'll say, you know what, we're all back to normal. But that, yeah. that would talk to your point uh, then, David. Uh, three years from now, uh, you don't invest today so that you can make money tomorrow. You invest so you can make it in the long term. I think the markets have reacted as though the world is going to go into a deep recession. In other words, it's, it's discounting the worst possible um, outcome, that, uh, that supply chains are simply going to halt and you won't be able to get any supplies. I'm not, I'm not brushing this aside at all. You know, I think that we must take it seriously. And as, exactly as Vickers has said, you've got to prepare for these kind of viruses because they're going to keep coming around all the time. Uh, the market is something else. We're used to that. You know, we're used to these kind of responses. The and thing that you, that you should expect from mm. markets, though, is that surprises move markets. Market. So the market shouldn't be surprised mm. that we're getting something like coronavirus, but it can be surprised that we're getting it now. Mm. And because of the way that you discount things, something that may happen in the far future, so you know what, we will have these incidents mm. with pathogens mm. coming into. But if it comes now, that means you're discounting of mm. immediate profit gets affected much more severely, and that's why markets move at this, on the surprise that we are getting the coronavirus now. So, so it should affect the market. But then the, the next question is, what is it that's actually scaring the market? And then you have to go back to say, where were we in the economic cycle before? Mm. And then you're saying we were at a very vulnerable point for the world economy because actually Europe is at a standstill already. It was at a standstill before coronavirus. Japan is in recession already because they've been silly enough to put that up massively. So that's shrinking already. The U.S. was kind of eking out 2% in spite of all the stimulation that had been put in from the tax cut and the, low and the interest rate cuts, etc. So it was, it was already vulnerable. So now... If you go into a situation where supply chains and where people don't travel and where they don't book uh, various things, and the other thing that happens, it's all about business confidence. So businesses will stop investing and say, let's see how this plays out. And if that tips you into recession, we haven't, it seems to me that the uh -huh. 2010s is the first decade since 1820 which we haven't had a recession in. So effectively, we're overdue for a recession. There will be some imbalances that come to the fore once we tip into recession. So it's the fear of that recession that's affecting markets. Brian, uh, Brian van Rooyen, I've got to ask you this question. Yes. We, we know that cannabis is being punted as the wonder uh, for pharmaceuticals, not just for recreational purposes. Is there anything that cannabis might be able to <laughs> find to, to fix this coronavirus? Well, I don't well, know whether there is, but I'm going to try. <laughs> well, well uh, uh, interestingly that you, that you talk about it, uh, because one of the things that David asked us uh, earlier on is where are we from a pharmaceutical point of view? The GW Pharmaceuticals have just released their results in December with the first CBD-infused drug called Epidiolex for epilepsy. They turned over $300 million on that one drug. They've got two THC ones, and coming back to the coronavirus, 
we have now hang our head on to the uh, to the scientists in South Africa, and we're busy talking to uh, to a group uh, out in the Eastern Cape that have done a lot of tests in South Africa for various strains of flus and uh, all sorts of uh, um, uh, viral kind of issues. Yeah, yeah. I've got to be very careful what Uh I say so I don't get knocked by Sapra or somebody else. But these are are scientists, uh, doctors, that has uh, run a whole string of tests, not only in South Africa, but internationally. So yes, there would be an opportunity to look at some of those medicinal advantages of um, of cannabis with high THC mixed with um, uh, with your CBDs uh, in the South African market. David, um, imagine mm-hmm. Brian's Labat Africa does a deal on cannabis which finds the cure to <laughs> coronavirus. <laughs> any kind of cure to any kind of virus. I, I, I think we'll celebrate. Don't, mm. you know, I, I, I love themes. I love these new themes to look for new ways. Look, we're in a building here called oh. WeWork, which I'm so, you know, which is sad the way it's gone, the way it hasn't been accepted. I think it's a brilliant, brilliant. concept. So I love to look at... At, uh, so you're going to buy some some well, of the Labat Africa shares? We'll look at it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mm. never close my eyes to anything. I never close the door to any kind of theme. There was a one of our community members dropped me a mail and said, on Friday, I don't know where you were talking on Friday or where they heard it, David Shapiro said he's buying on Monday I after did. the coronavirus. I did say that. Mm. And, and, and well, you still feel the same <laughs> way after listening <laughs> to Vickers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, markets are silly. Yes. Markets, markets uh, feed on themselves, and we know that uh, you've got traders now who are highly geared, and therefore, when the market kicks in one direction, believe me, it starts to move on itself, and hysteria sets in, and you get these very, very crazy moves. Um, I didn't say that I was going to buy. I said I would consider buying. Um, I still like that these. That sounds like hedging. It is me. hedging. It's <laughs> hedging because one has to understand the news and to see where it's going. Don't be too quick. You know, yeah. I think I, I still, I'm very, very excited about what lies ahead from a technological point of view, from technology, where this uh, uh, global economy will be five years hence um, rather than where it is now. And that's what we start to look forward to. So, yeah, we're going to get these setbacks. And, and I must just say one thing about Vickers when he, he was talking there, and he mentioned we were in, uh, after a 30% rise in U.S. markets last year, you knew that this was going to be a year of consolidation. In other words, a year in which earnings have to catch up with valuations yep. if they do. So we were prepared for what I call a consolidation. You know, as a warning client, don't expect anything this year. You know, if we come out square or with a slight grain, and I'm talking in dollar terms, I'll be thrilled. And I still think it's going to be that kind of year. And uh, as Vickers mentioned, you know, he went through the various economies. This is a tough year. You know, we're in a tough situation. Without the virus. Without the virus. Are you, are you taking long-term uh, positions yet, or are you also just exercising well, patience? What, what we're doing for our clients at the moment is we were very cautious when the year started. So in our global portfolios, which is most of our clients' long-term money, we had a lot of bonds and a lot of gold. So actually our clients are up for the year at this point. So over the two weeks when the markets have come down 14%, our client portfolios are up slightly because of the bond content and the gold content. So we were quite prepared for this because we were cautious to start off with. 
Now, at the moment, we're doing two things. The one is we're doing a small rebalance. We're taking a little bit of profit <laughs> on the stuff that's done well, and we're buying a little bit of the stuff that's gone down. Uh, that's an automatic trigger in, 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 in our portfolios. And what stuff? Meaning the gold and bonds have gone have gone up, so we're selling some yeah, but of the what bonds. stuff are you buying? We know what you're selling, and that yeah, doesn't matter to us. The stuff that we're buying is basically shares across the world. So we use ETFs to get very wide um, exposure. But David and I markets. like, like yeah. the individuals, yeah. like Cecil yeah. under 200 Rand, like we Discovery under 100. Or is, yeah. Do you anything like you can't uh, talk we, to us we about We don't that. actually even think about that. What we're saying is, you know what? Um, we, we actually in in the smart beta portfolios, so the kind of stuff that you know overweights the smaller shares rather than the large caps, uh, because of the fact that the large caps are typically the overvalued stuff, or mm -hmm. the stuff that has gone up a lot that 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 has large capitalizations. Um, so so those the smart beta things would automatically correct that. Um, but the other thing that we're doing is we are slowing our portfolios down meaning we actually use derivatives to say this is a dangerous time and there's high volatility around. And one of the things that we found is that markets don't e actually do better when high volatility is around. Markets do as well in low volatility periods as in high volatility periods. So we basically reduce our clients' exposure to risky stuff, meaning equities mostly, at times when volatility is high and then we actually increase it again at times when volatility has dissipated. So we're at the slowest level, so the corona, the most cautious. the coronavirus is actually playing to your advantage. Absolutely. Our clients have done extremely well out of coronavirus because they were pre-positioned mm. for something mm -hmm. that would worry yeah. markets. I haven't got enough time to do all of that. My approach to investment is very simple. And it's very buffety, even though I like to look and say, we're the best, what are the best companies that you want to own and then for the next five years? And when I said from a technological point of view, we're going into what I call the data economy. It's not my term, it's a term that is now starting to dominate our investment scenes. And when you start to project that, where the use of data, the storage of data, the need to secure the data, the processing of data, when you start to look at businesses around that theme, you suddenly come into a very, very exciting uh, area. Yesterday, there's, uh, on the weekend, there was a company that I, we have followed for a long time called ASML. This is a little company in Holland that makes the equipment. I can't, I, I don't, I can't uh, describe the equipment that allows semiconductor makers to make the chips. And it's a brilliant business. And here you are, somewhere in a small little business in Holland, can actually compete or develop this kind of equipment. Those are the kind of businesses that we like to go for. So we take that kind of theme. But I, have to, I, don't, I don't want to just dismiss what you've said now. When we look at Sassel, when we look at Nampak, Hulerman, um, ArcelorMittal, when you look at the assets in that company, I don't think you've, we've seen it at this discount ever. You know, where it is mm. absolute for someone like Brian who can raise money and who can raise a couple of billion, I mean there are incredible opportunities here for and I think what happens, these companies are either going to be sold or they're going to be bought out the stock market and that, that but there's going to be 
corporate activity around it. We've got the yeah. CEO, the new CEO of Lampac in next week, mm. so we can actually grill him a little bit on, on that business, this why it's gone down so much. This is giveaway. Under, for $10 billion, you can buy the whole of South Africa. And that's Rand, not dollars. You know, Alec, David is so right. One of the things that we're looking at, uh, you know, we keep on hearing that uh, Hewlett has um, shut down another uh, sugar mill. Mm. Now, that affects thousands of of small scale farmers in that area because there's no more need for sugar but there's need for cannabis there's need for him <laughs> so mm. so what david is saying that equipment that is sitting there not all of it can be used for the processing of hemp but some of it can be and the land is there and a partnership and you can save jobs and and you, and that's precisely what we're doing now we're raising capital because you must remember in South Africa, there's probably about 150-odd licenses that has been issued for hemp production, which is under the Department of Agriculture in conjunction with uh, the NPA and the Department of uh, Health and so on. But there's not one hemp processing facility in South Africa. So what are you going to do? You've got to find those processing facilities that are sitting there that you can pick up like for 10, 10 billion rand for nothing. And, and, and you can save Hewlett. You can save the people around it, the subsistence farmers. You know, hemp production in South Africa or hemp farming in South I don't want to become a farmer, but what we want to do, we want to be the processor. We want to be the old 1935 co-op. Kuparasi, mm -hmm. that will bring everything into South Africa. You know, you take in hemp production, you can get two and a half uh, crops per year. You're talking about three to four full-time jobs per hectare of land. You're never going to get it. So if, the, if Cyril really wants to do, the president wants to implement what he says, make available a million hectares of land for hemp production or hemp farming in South Africa, get the processing. That's what the IDC and the mm. PIC should be doing. They should be, and, and, and David is right, we, we, we at the door of those people and say, we're here to create industries. We're here to create industries. You know, it's so interesting. At the uh, Africa World Economic Forum, and you can go back and listen to the podcast, I interviewed the chief economist of, of ABSA, and said to him at that time, because cannabis was starting to, to bubble under, what about the cannabis industry? And he laughed. He said, oh, you know, it was almost, come on, cannabis, pass it on. And but you that what you've just said now is that certainly we saw it in the, in the state of the nation and the opportunities that exist for this country to be processing rather than a raw material exporter like has, has got to be the Let fight. me give you one example, just one simple example. We currently, the motor vehicle industry in South Africa, use about three to four billion rands worth of hemp plastic for the cars inside. Hemp plastic? Hemp plastic. You uh -huh. know your dashboards yeah. and your panels. It's made out of hemp. It's made out of hemp. It's all imported because mm -hmm. there's no, but here we're sitting with millions of hectares of land that we can, that we can put it up here in South Africa, process it here, and just pass it on to the guys in the Eastern Cape. <laughs> and it doesn't take a lot. And you it doesn't take a lot. <laughs> you know what happened? We have, uh, I was sitting in outside Melrose Arch where our building is and uh, I was waiting for my wife to fetch me and I looked down and I could see this place. I said, this is familiar. 
And and what happened? Obviously, this is the smoking zone. So someone was smoking <laughs> and dropped the <laughs> pot there. <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly I tweeted. I, I showed this flower. I said, is this what I think it is? And within a few minutes, I think the authorities at Melrose Arch had come and cleaned the garden. Yeah. But it just shows you had how easily it grows. Have they cleaned Tito's <laughs> farm yet? Because he was showing all his hemp. Uh, and and that's plants that it just uh, grow out of control. Uh, and, and that's the new industry in South mm -hmm. Africa. You know, that's uh, your your wood, your fiber, your plastics, your um, your proteins. You know, hemp has got more omega three and six oil in it than fish oil. That's a, that's a fact. Well, and we don't have to overfish the oceans. Um, but but I think it, it brings us back to a to a slightly different theme. You can go quickly. <laughs> We're not getting approvals for anything in South Africa because everybody's too afraid of the whole state capture issue and being True. caught up in that. True. So that's actually holding back investment in South Africa in a big way. Because Marie, good to have you on the program. Brian van Rooyen, thanks for giving us your insights into cannabis. David, we're going to be talking in a moment about market action, but uh, we're going to let our two other guests depart now. This is Rational Radio. That's fascinating, David, talking to Brian oh. van Rooyen, wasn't it? He's, uh, he's been around for, well, I mean, he listed Labatt. In the year that I listed MoneyWeb, 1999. Feels Still like, around, like yeah. a different, different life. I like where he's going. I really, I think, and he's confident, and uh, I think this one can work. I don't think we must dismiss anything, particularly. What I like about his concept is that, you know, where you've got something like Hewlett's. Um, Alec, the market value of Hewlett is 400 odd million rand. Of course, they've got the debt, they've just sold the starch business. John got Hewlett, seriously? Yeah. Is it yeah. down to that? Yeah. In other words, that's what the market's valuing it. With all those rolling lands and exactly as he said, all those processing units. Um, ArcelorMittal was valued at 100 billion maybe a few years ago. It's down to a billion now. So you can buy all those steel mills for a billion, for a billion rand. rand. It's mad. You know, and I'm you buy Newcastle for a billion uh, rand. Well, you know it. If, yeah. if anybody knows Mm -hmm. uh, the processing, the plant involved, and what a what a steel mill, you know. Yes, uh, I was an operator. Yeah. Uh, in the steel <laughs> mill for for one long, very very long university vac. Mm. And so I think those assets, those real assets, are in South Africa just being chucked away and valued at absolutely nothing. Would you have a go at Labat Africa? Though? I would look at it. Oh, mm. absolutely. Because you know, if they get it right, you know, they're, they're a couple of cannabis, and the other one is plant food. You know, where where companies are developing plant food, you know, um, meat New substitutes. Themes. Yeah, this is a wonderful theme. Um, you, I handle other people's money, so I've got to be very careful with it. I can't just be frivolous and uh, take gambles with it. But um, we look at those and we study them very, very carefully. So I'm, I'm excited about you know where we're going and what's where the world's going in the next couple of years. Mm. Dave, uh, you mentioned Tongart Hewlett. Yeah. I, I did talk at the top of the show to Dave Woolham uh, about the sale of the starch mm. operations, yeah. five and a quarter billion roughly, of yeah. 13 billion in debt, so they're going to they're halve that. But it does seem to be a, a company that's still struggling to find its way out of the problems that it's in. Absolutely, and that's why you can buy the company for 400 odd million. Um, how are they going to make the other 800 and 8 billion? 
um, they've got the land, but no one wants to buy the land at the moment. And if you can do what Brian says, you, know, you can start converting it. Take the sugar, put exactly it into cannabis. Or something like that. You know, there's got to be. Dave. Yeah, look, I, just it, think of that. Something Brian wow. must look at, yeah. Mm. You know, there, you there might be other products that they can grow that would be, have a worldwide uh, acceptance. Um, so I don't. Uh, this is land, you know, and it's beautiful land. You know that area far better than I do. This is KZN. <laughs> and, um, cannabis grows mm, when you mm. spit the pips out, as you saw yep. at Melrose yeah. Arch. It <laughs> grows double in, in KZN and um, even better in Mpumalanga. Mm. And the, if he's the got the there. processing, you know, and if he gets a head start on everybody and can process this and turn it into whatever product they need, yeah. Interesting it, story. It's an industry. Mm. You, know, you can create industries. In this country, we've got to be innovative. Yeah. An industry that has done well for two players, but not for the third, is mobile phones. Oh. Cell C uh, still having its problems. I see that Blue Label's results were just out. Now they're talking about sending water, uh, well, measuring meters for yeah. water. Why the heaven did they go into Cell C in the first place? Do you I, I, I asked them that question. And uh, I think they were badly advised. I think they were badly advised and also perhaps overrating their own uh, capabilities. And I say that in a nice way. I think that where um, other people had failed, I don't know what they thought they had. In fact, I had a conversation because having monitored what was happening in other markets, um, if you look at the U.S., it's down to three operators. Um, you know, Sprint is just gone. So you've got, I think, T-Mobile, AT&T, and Verizon. That's it. The whole of the United States. Why would you have four to five here? You know, and leave it to MTN and leave it to uh, Vodacom. Maybe Telcom could find a small space in that. But um, they, they wrote off five and a half billion plus in two years. I mean, that's a massive, massive destruction of wealth. How do they keep their jobs, Levy Brothers? I don't know. Do they, do they have a – and it's, a, it's, it's not a, a, a rhetorical question. No. It's more of a – do they have the, the, the equity that ensures that they control the company so they keep it? Or would it be the board that, that says, well, sorry, well, one mistake, it's okay? Well, I think the board are responsible for that mistake as well. So it's the same board that is uh, – <laughs> you can't fire itself. But as an outside investor, I'm surprised that no one's actually asked that question. You know, how, do you, how do you write off, you know, when Peter McClary wrote off $2 billion odd in, um, in, in, for Tiger Brands in Nigeria, it didn't last long after that, and, and so it goes. Um, a lot of other managers having written off massive amounts uh, are, you know, are shown the door. In America, <laughs> it's, 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 not a, you know, it's, it's, it's almost immediate. So how people hold their jobs like this and they'll, you know, it's going to take a long time for them to get their credibility back. You know, people are going to question what they're doing. And I suppose it's a, it's, it's a very, what would you call it? It's like a club, you know, and uh, they still probably attract... A bar mitzvah club? A bar mitzvah could be. <laughs> Wasn't that the, what fact, they used I have to, to call tell it? You, I have to tell you in a, in a nice way because you'll appreciate it. When they went into the deal and... Uh, I'd made a comment on TV and they phoned me back and I said, Brett, Mark, I said, the shuls need you. Don't lose this money. <laughs> because they are very magnanimous. They are very, very charitable chaps. 
And I think they kept, you know, they did a lot of good work with the money when they had it. I said, don't lose it, <laughs> which unfortunately has happened. Well, Tonga would have also <laughs> lost it. And today we saw the RCL interims, which was mm. quite interesting mm. to see that their sugar is a gross part of mm. their business. Whereas in Tonga, they're very concerned about it pulling them further down. I don't know if you had a chance to look I at RCL. But this came out of uh, this, this came out of the Rembrandt state. You know, st- um, Rainbow chickens. Yeah. Rainbow mm-hmm. chickens and that. And uh, I have to look at that. Uh, it's also been battered recently and that. I don't know. That's another story is uh, where does Rembrandt go? You know, some of these old businesses that we built our reputations on that we used to follow so closely have just kind of gone nowhere. And uh, I don't know whether generations got too old, and I think they all need to re to relook at their business models. Mm. Well, the numbers are confusing mm. again because headline earnings are down by two and a half percent, but they co- say underlying headline earnings per share up twenty four percent. So it's it's once again these confusing numbers. Surely there must be a way to clean all of this, and so that it's simple and it's. You can understand. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm an accountant. I'm a chartered accountant, you know, and it confuses me because you want to look at the real worth of the business, and it's very, very confusing. You know, even this IFRA 16 is extremely confusing. And I'm saying, why are you introducing these uh, standards which make things distort? If, if, if you, if, if you want to know, ask Buffett. If you read his newsletter, it was all complaints and moans about mark-to-market and how it's distorting the underlying value of his business. And if there's anybody who knows how to value a business, it's Mr. Buffett, you know, mm. the true value of a business. And he's moaning and groaning and complaining and saying, ignore that. And, and, and I think for a person who doesn't understand accounting, and reading these results is, is, is very, very difficult. And if you feel confused, don't worry. You know, everybody else Every, is confused as well. But that doesn't fix no, it because it you're doesn't. trying to help people to invest it and doesn't. to understand. Buffett, uh, you mentioned Warren Buffett's uh, mm. annual letter. He also has been a vociferous opponent of EBITDA. Yeah, uh, EBITDA being and, – and Charlie Munger, who's 96 or 97 yeah. now, uh, similarly. Absolutely. And yet I still see in All the financial community EBITDA is, is – uh, just in a, in a nutshell, what is EBITDA and why it's is Buffett so earnings before interest, tax and, uh, and uh, amortization. amortization. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get that out. Those are real expenses. You can't ignore them. And that's what they're saying. They're saying in the operation of, of a uh, in the operation of a business, interest is a very important factor because if you overborrowed, interest is going to be high. So what they try, what what accountants are trying to look at, or analysts are trying to look at, is the actual operational side. They're saying, let's look at the gross profit. You know, your trading profit as being a true reflection. So of if you business. had a pile of cash, you mm. could go and buy this business mm. with your cash, mm. and then you would make all the EBITDA. So the the the, the cash flow would come to you. But yeah. surely you're going to pay tax on it anyway. Well, so why do you want to take the tax? Tax is a very important factor as well, and certainly depreciation is a massive factor because what is depreciation? You allow to write off your assets but they give you that write off so you can replace it with cash so if you understand what I'm saying you're writing off a machine but that's saying that's giving you the opening to put money aside to buy a new machine so they're giving it they say yes machines are going to depreciate it's a real cost 
And if you haven't made a fact, if you haven't provided for that, you're going to get caught because you're going to buy a new machine. So I, I agree. I just think it's absolute rubbish. You know, I just, to me, accounting is an absolute fraud today. So you've got a lot of work to do in the next week uh, to find out more about NAMPAC because mm. we're going to talk to the new NAMPAC CEO next week and we'll then be able to ask him whether it is the David Shapiro stock pick for the year because <laughs> 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 at the value, at the value it's offering now, it, it, it might just be. Well, quite a show to start our life here at WeWork in our brand new studio, and we're closing it off with a highlight. Bert Gunning is the proprietor, owner of 41 KFCs. Now, Bert, good to have you in the studio. You've, you've had a, um, a, 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 lots of awards, which we'll talk about in a moment, but KFC, according to Wikipedia anyway, which I guess you can believe some of the stuff on the internet, is by far the biggest franchise operation or fast food operation in South Africa. They, I couldn't get the exact number, but the latest figure I saw was 960 uh, outlets. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, the 960 outlets in South Africa. And uh, they're busy expanding into the rest of Africa um, in most of their countries. In fact, just recently they've opened a store in Madagascar and in Sudan. So that would make South Africa the fourth biggest country in the world for KFC, again, according to Wikipedia. Just give you the numbers. They say that China, there's 4,500 KFCs, US, 4,000, Japan, about 1,200, UK, 900, and South Africa, 960. That's extraordinary. It is extraordinary, and that's all happened over the last, well, it's been in South Africa for about 40 years, and the big expansion has really taken place in the last four to six years. Oh, why is that? Um, I think they realized that there were many areas that could have been exploited and not just the suburban uh, KFCs. And so they, um, there was a big rush to open up quite a lot of them. And uh, luckily, they mostly uh, nearly all successful. Now, you're an accountant, <coughs> a chartered accountant. Who, who were you with? Where did you do your, your articles? I did my articles in Johannesburg with a firm um, just a bit bigger than medium size called Richardson, McEverly and Reed. And then I formed my own auditing practice that was called Gunning Bosser from Monroe. And I was in practice for about 10 years. Yes. And then what got you into a completely different area? Because this is, franchising is not for the faint hearted. I've always been, I think, an entrepreneur. And um, when I got to know about KFC and how they operate and what they're doing, uh, I found that that's what I wanted to do. And I was lucky enough to get involved in them in, about, in 1985 when I got uh, my first uh, KFC in Rustenburg. And that was, uh, I turned it into quite a reasonably successful um, operation. Did you live there? No, I didn't. I've always lived in, in Johannesburg, in Sandton, yes. Because one hears that, uh, the difficulty about any outlet, any retail outlet, but particularly in the food business, is that if you're not on the premises, uh, it can, or if you don't have very good managers, it can be uh, quite challenging. I think it is extremely challenging, but I fortunately uh, was able to get 
somebody to take charge of that store who was I could believe in and trust and, and did a hell of a good job. So from that first store, you now got 41. In 1987, after I'd had the store for about two years or more, <coughs> the, the good Reverend Jesse Jackson in America uh, compelled the USA that they were not to have any stores, not to have any assets or people in South Africa. So there was a big exodus, um, like Barclays Bank, for example, Merbel, and of course KFC. They had about 40 stores in, uh, throughout the country, and they had to sell those. And so I was allowed to bid on an auction for them, and uh, uh, I bought six stores with no money at all. So I borrowed it all. How? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the best companies in the world are divesting, and, and you haven't got any money, and you managed to pick up six stores. Which, who was the, the banker that believed in you? The, it was the old trust bank who's now uh, um, APSA. And, um, and I was really nervous, I must tell you that, because it's about the first time in my life that uh, over, say, a two-, three-week period, I lost about 10 kilos because of nervousness. Yeah. We were okay. So you had the Rustenburg store. So you knew a little bit about not a little bit. You knew a lot about how that store operated. What made you confident enough to go and borrow the money for another six? Um, I thought that I uh, that it was a very good and I think an honest franchise, and so I was quite prepared to take that risk. But it was a risk because everybody else was divesting at that time, um, and so. The stores that I bought were all in Pretoria, and they were quite close to where I li- sort of closish to where I live, and um, and I started off that way, and then it's, it grew organically from there, and uh, opening up about two, three stores a year, and then also um, I bought one or two stores from other franchisees as well over the years. How does one get into a KFC? At the moment, it's not that easy, uh, but I must say that I'm a, a franchisee. I'm not a franchisor. The essence of a, any, any uh, fast food outlet, and ours particularly, is the site. So you need to have a site that you can either uh, get the lease for or that you own, and then you need to present a business plan to uh, KFC, and they'll evaluate that uh, together with evaluating you as a potential franchisee, and also whether you're compatible with their philosophies. And what are they? Well, that you're prepared to work in the system. What we try and do is, if we've got a problem, we try and speak to the franchisor, and, but try and come with a solution as well, not just the problem. Now, luckily, the KFC franchisor in South Africa is very open to discussions with the franchisees insofar as they have councils and one there'll be a council for marketing and a council for purchasing on that and in those about three to four franchisees sit in those as well and I sit on some of those councils and then ideas are cross-pollinated in those councils uh, but it's on an advisory basis and so once the policy is made, then 
it's the policy for the whole of KFC. Okay, so very much a listening organisation. You've, in the past year anyway, according to the press releases that we got, you had the first and second uh, most successful franchise stores in the country, in Midrand and Centurion. Out of 960, that's, that's quite some going. What is it that you're doing that others might not be doing? Um, we try and stick to the principles that, and the systems that KFC have got, which are very good. But in addition to that, we do try, and in my company, we have developed some additional uh, things that we do. For example, we've got a computer program um, that we uplift and revise every year uh, to be able to service our, our uh, customers and quickly. Um, and this uh, has helped us tremendously. So it's an in-house uh, product. And in addition to that, we keep training. It's not a day go past that we don't train people. So it's reinvesting in the staff, people? Yes. Mm. And I think that's one of the other things we've been doing, uh, particularly we have, is that we promote within. We, don't, we virtually don't hire from outside. So we give people a chance to grow within the business and uh, it gives even the lowliest worker a chance to see that there's some light at the end of the tunnel. How do you, how do you recruit then? We recruit um, uh, by putting in adverts and, and particularly where we open in, a, in, a, in an area, we, we nearly exclusively recruit the, the, the customer service workers and the food service workers from around that area so that um, we hopefully get something back from the community and we give something back to that community as well. Mm. And is that a, a KFC process around the world? I think it is very much so, but in, we particularly adhere to that because it, it's paid dividends for us. But what gets you up in the morning? 41 stores, it's, it's quite, a, quite an empire to manage, particularly if you own them. Uh, what what keeps you going? Uh, I think I'm fortunate enough to have sort of found my uh, spiritual home in uh, KFC, and so I'm very happy to get up in the morning and and try and uh, get my get people motivated, and that, and where they really try and show enthusiasm, which is my I think is the biggest attribute. I'd like to take them with their journey with me, and hopefully that does work. A story about uh, one of your managers, Marcia Mortlatla. She was selected as one of the three in the world to go to, to Singapore. What did you do to help her to get there? Well, first of all, that's a really good news story, and we're extremely proud of it. Her name is Marcia, and she works in our Midrand drive through And <clears throat> she's been, she was running the store exceptionally well, uh, to the extent that she was um, selected by Yum, uh, which is a franchisor, uh, to represent uh, South Africa at the uh, coming convention, international convention in Singapore. So out of the 960 stores, she was selected for that, insofar as that she um, increased the sales of that store tremendously. She ran it to the, the standards and beyond that KFC won. And uh, 
And she's, would, I think, just make a tremendous ambassador for us. And she is also the manager of the number one store in South Africa. And she is also the, yeah. Where did you find her? We found her, and she, like we find most of the people, and she worked her way up from a, a cashier on the, on the till to a ship supervisor, then assistant manager, then a manager, and, uh, and she's just always been bright and spontaneous, and we've been able to work with her and she with us very well. So no university degree? And no university degree. <laughs> is that, is that a, a prerequisite in your business, that you don't have a university degree? No, no, no. Not at all. We're quite happy to have that. Mm. <coughs> but it's, uh, it's quite difficult to find a lot of people with university degrees who want to be cashiers and ma managers of a KFC. It's hard work. It's, when we first started, I did years ago, it was quite an easy job. We sold chicken and chips. Now we've got about 20 products. And we have to really be on the ball in so far as that Unlike, um, say, another restaurant, we make the food before you come. And we hope that you're going to buy that, and we must project. But we also have to be careful that because we're only allowed to keep that food for one and a half hours. So if it's more than one and a half hours, we have to discard it. But we also want to have the food there when you do come, and because we are, after all, a fast food outlet. Bert, I saw that the head office of KFC is in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, that's not the, uh, well, it's not, it's not the center of, of many parts. I have happened to be to Louisville, yes. Kentucky to watch the Kentucky Derby a few years yes. ago. Have you visited there? Have you visited with the people there? Um, well, uh, they have quite recently, uh, about a year ago or so, moved to Dallas. Ah, okay. So that's and a bit of an upgrade, I guess. Yes, and so... Um, and uh, no, I haven't been there uh, just recently, no. But I suppose Kentucky Fried Chicken, you've got to be in Kentucky somewhere. Well, you should be, yes. And I think they do have some regional offices there to just keep, the, keep it going. But the actual main office is in Dallas. And, and the whole Colonel Sanders mystique? Yeah, that's, that's really quite interesting. There was a real Colonel Sanders. It was Harlan Sanders. And um, he was 65 years old uh, in 1952 when he opened a little restaurant on a highway in the USA. Uh, and did, he was cooking fried, uh, southern fried chicken. Uh, but what he did differently is he did that in an oil pressure cooker. And uh, he then developed his herbs and spices and became very well known and people would visit from all over uh, to the extent that he then decided to franchise the business. His first franchise was in fact in Canada and then in uh, Mexico and then of course in, in the United States. And, um, and then it started expanding and then in later life he, with his white suit and his uh, black string tie, became a roving ambassador for KFC. So there really was a Colonel Sanders who, who really did all of that. Extra really did, yes. Extraordinary. That obviously, he would have passed by now, but yes. the world has changed a lot, though. 
um, food today, the whole food market is becoming quite politicized and, and, and quite controversial in many ways. Is this a threat at all to KFC, to your businesses? Um, I think any of these things are a threat, but you must be able to handle it. And uh, unfortunately, KFC, and particularly KFC in South Africa, have done a really good job in trying to keep up with uh, uh, any potential threats, like um, using the proper oils for cooking, and um, and also extremely strict uh, on our um, and all the products that come into the into the short, uh, stores, particularly the, the the chicken, but everything, including serviettes, everything has to be. Uh, done according to their star rating, and if it isn't, then we wouldn't use it. And, so and we do not import any chicken. And you've got particular suppliers, no doubt, that you focus on. I was just thinking uh, the whole listeriosis uh, debacle at Tiger Brands. It didn't yes. have anything to do with with your product, but presumably, if something similar to that happened, it would it would be almost existential for a, a business like yours. It would be terrible. And so we have to be really careful. The one, I suppose, we, we really do check uh, people like Rainbow supplies with a, a vast amount of our chicken, but there are three others as well, uh, that they are audited uh, on a monthly basis. And then we do have the advantage that we uh, deep fry everything in, uh, in pressure cooked oil. So that pretty well kills everything that could have been nasty. Mm. So, 41 outlets or 41 franchises now. You've you've won the the best franchise store of the year in South Africa. Is it four times? Yes, four times. What's next? Um, <laughs> well, I'd like to uh, carry on this way, but I I would also need to. It's a, it's a really a family business that uh, I've got. I've got my two sons in the business and my son-in-law. And uh, it works quite well. It has its challenges because each one's got his personality. But we, I wouldn't have it any other way. And um, what we do, particularly in, in my company, it's called Gunnery Foods, we have a system of benching. It's very much like soccer. So for every manager we've got, we've got another one sitting on the bench ready to take over from him in case he gets ill or he goes on leave or, or gets promoted. And so we have it for our area managers, and now I'm benching for me. So I think that's the next challenge. Is that causing trouble in the family? Which of the sons will actually step up? Um, a little, but uh, it's resolvable, certainly. We, we saw today the financial results from Tiger Brands, um, which shows that they're managing to, to hold, these are for the last six months, they manage, sorry, Tiger Brands, we saw this morning the financial results for famous foods, oh. famous brands, uh, which shows that their turnovers are, are flat at the moment. Is it, is it, uh, are you having a similar experience that the economy is pretty tough? There's no doubt about it that the economy is pretty tough. But uh, we've managed to, as KFC as a whole, and uh, I suppose our group is a little bit above that, uh, to be in positive territory for the last year and that. So that's been very good news for us. And if you have a look at the parallels between divesting when you first came into the business 
and the negativity towards South Africa at that time and today where we see so many people emigrating. Are you seeing that as well amongst fellow entrepreneurs that more KFC franchises are becoming available because of people leaving the country or is that not something that's inflicting itself on your market? I haven't really seen it because people are leaving the country or fran fellow franchisees but there have been a few uh, sales of uh, stores, quite substantial uh, ones, uh, to uh, outside um, uh, enterprises uh, over the last year or so. Uh, but nothing, I think, more serious than generally. When you say outside enterprises, so more corporatized than, than the individual entrepreneurs? Yes, more corporatized, one or two have happened, but only about two or so. But it's also one of the first times it's happened in many, many years. Why would that be? I think they see uh, some stability in, uh, in, in the, f the franchise market, and particularly in KFC, uh, in that it's got legs. You know, it's been there 40 years, and, and, and I think when I go to restaurants quite often, and if they're there three years later, that's quite a good news for me. And it is something that you can invest for the long term. Why do you think just to close off with, South Africa is so successful for KFC. Is it, is it the palate, the local palate? Because that, that, uh, if you think of our country, we're about half a percent of global population, yet we have the fourth most KFCs of any country in the world. I think it's a, it's a taste that was unique and still is very unique and that is... It's very, very popular amongst uh, South Africans, and now it seems to be proving to be popular in Africa as well. So I think it has, uh, it has the, the local taste that people like. So you could see Africa perhaps becoming an even bigger market into the future for KFC. It, I think it can be. You know, if you take some pla uh, place like Nigeria, which I think has got about ten times the population of South Africa. So it must go uh, big there in, in time to come. I think it's a bit of a difficult uh, thing at the moment, but it's, it's taking, taking hold and it's going. And would you invest in another part of the continent? I'm, as my family business, I'm not, I'm not doing that at the moment. I could look at that in time to come, um, but I'd have to do it in a country that I'm comfortable with. And... Uh, and can handle. Which is not that easy in this day and age. No, because also you have to import everything, more or less, and, and then you have to also try and get a chicken supplier that meets the standards uh, set by KFC. Bert Canning, South Africa's most um, awarded KFC franchisor, 41 KFCs. I remember a friend of mine telling me that if you had one, it was like having a gold mine. Well, having 41 gold mines is, uh, is, is quite a business that uh, Bert has built up over the last 35 years. Well, this has been this week's edition of Rational Radio. We'll be back again with you same time, same place next week. Until then, cheerio.